what Billy didn't tell you is I'm half Guatemalan. Uh, most people don't believe that for obvious reasons. Uh, Guatemalans tend to be short. <coughs> and um, and it's also a country very dear to my heart and I've uh, been very involved with immigration reform for a number of years. So muy buenos días. Es un placer estar con ustedes en esta mañana. But I'll do the rest in English. This is actually a very hard message uh, to bring. Um, the last time I was asked to speak on this very passage, uh, the pastor was out of town, and I think probably for a good reason. <laughs> and the way I want to get into this passage is by putting a thought into your head. What the prophets will battle is a misunderstanding, a misconstrual of the person of God himself. The temples are full. The sacrifice is plenty. The singing is loud. But God will say things, even in this book of Amos, I hate, I detest your worship. Because the one whom you worship isn't me, even though you have given him my name. Listen to the opening verses of the psalm that Billy began the last singing portion with. May God arise, may his enemies be scattered, may his foes flee before him, may you blow them away like smoke as wax melts before the fire. May the wicked perish before God, but may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Why? Because he has judged the wicked. You see, in the Old Testament, there are two kinds of idols. There is the idol that comes from other lands, other religions. Baal, Moloch, Ishtar, Asher, Chemosh. And they carry different names and they have different characteristics. And at one level, it's a fight to rid the people of those idols, but there is a deeper stronger idol that is harder to deal with and, and harder to get the people of God to see. It is the idol that they will call Yahweh, the Lord. But it is, it is a God whom they have fashioned according to their desires. A God limited to what they have experienced. And so we do this, don't we? We, we go church shopping until we find a church that we like, the music that we enjoy, the preaching that is good. And so what we were looking for actually is our idol, the God that we want, the God with whom we are comfortable. Many times in evangelical churches, I hear this from the pulpit. 
You know, don't make money your idol. Don't, don't make your job your idol. Don't, don't make your belongings your idol. Those are not your idols. You don't worship them. You are obsessed by them. That's not the same thing. The idol is the God who somehow sanctifies that and legitimates that. And you come into a church building that's very comfortable. Carpets and fancy sound system and light shows and computers. Stadium seating. It's all very good. Get coffee. You may not bring in your Bible, but you'll bring in your coffee, won't you? And the God we have fashioned is the God to whom we sing. It's the God to whom we give. It's the God we read about in the books that we buy. It's, it's the God we hear about in the conferences that we go to. That is the idol. The idol we call the Lord. But he is just a projection of ourselves. And so what happens is we ignore parts of the Bible that we just don't want to go to. We won't talk about the aspects of God that we just don't like. And this is why I commend this church. It takes a lot of courage, Nick, to do this book. I can guarantee that some of you will be angry and defensive. Maybe leave. This isn't the God you wanted. And in our suburban world, you can shop around to find the one you prefer. What we see in this book is life on the ground. Life in all of its horror and ugliness. A life full of human tragedy and cruelty. This isn't the suburbs. This is no longer Disney World because we do live in Disney World. You know that, don't you? How would the songs you sing play in Damascus this morning? Or what if you were in the refugee camps of Kenya and talking to the Sudanese Christians who had fled, what would you say to the Nigerian church that had been blown up? What would you say to the four million Syrian refugees massing on the borders of Iraq, Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan? What would you say to the hundreds of thousands that are desperately trying to get into Europe? What would you tell those who drown in the Mediterranean trying to get to a safe shore? No happy, clappy Jesus there. Uncomfortable. But that's life outside the gates of Disney World. That is the story of humanity and all of its ugliness. I want to show you some slides to begin the message. They're not pleasant. But they get us moving in the direction of the passage. 
because this is a passage at the very beginning about war. And the people of Israel had a very nationalistic God. You see, God was a God of blessing. God is a God who would fight for them. It's a God of good times. God of national protection. But if you go to chapter 1, verse 2, he unmasks the lie because God speaks from Zion and from Jerusalem, not from the capital of Israel. He does not speak from the temple at Bethel. And that whole religious construct that had legitimated, legitimated this society is shown to be false because of an erroneous view of God. And so the oracles begin. We're going to have the first slide. What we see is the cruelty in war. In the pictures you see, for those of us who are older, you should recognize these photos, don't you? Vietnam. You see the cruelty? The shot to the head. Screaming children running away. If you were to Google ISIS beheading, you will see the beheadings. You will see the bodies with the arms behind their back, face down, but the face is on top of their back now. This is the reality of war. You see, we glamorize it, don't we? We haven't had war on this soil in 150 years of civil war, so we, we entertain ourselves with war in our video games. We get points for killing people. This is what it means to be a human being. This is what humans do. The very first sin outside the garden is a brother killing another brother. Chapter 4 of Genesis ends with Lamech boasting about how many men he has killed. And before the flood comes, God announces that the earth is full of violence. Humans are violent creatures. We spend billions of dollars a year perfecting the art of war. And when our weapons get old, we sell them to the developing countries because we can still make money on it. And we perpetuate global violence. The casualties of war. Who are the casualties of war? The women and the children. The helpless ones, the vulnerable ones. No glory there, no nice parades there. No nice video games. When did you see that in a video game? Because that's what it really is. And we wonder why our troops who come home get drug addicted, become alcoholics, as they wrestle with PTSD because they remember and they try to forget. And the images haunt their minds and their souls to the day they die the destruction of war. We also have how cities are left in rubble, the fires, the burning, 
This is what's out there. This is what Amos is dealing with. This is their world. And this is ours. And lastly, we have poverty. It's a different kind of violence. It's structural violence. It's a single mom who works in a diner and she washes toilets just to put food on the table. It's the immigrant who works in the shadows cleaning our houses, cooking our meals, cutting our grass, putting the roofs on our houses, bussing the tables in the restaurant, working two or three jobs just to feed their children. And we hound them because they don't belong here, though we exploit their labor. This is the reality unmasked. This is the hard word of God. And this is why the people of Israel and of Judah hate the prophets. Who wants to hear that? And even in this book, Amos, who comes from Judah, another country, a foreigner, he comes to Israel and he denounces everything that he sees and even their faith. And the response of the high priest is, get out, you don't belong here, go back to where you came from. This is how people respond to hard messages. The walls go up. The defenses are unleashed. And the attacks begin. Because we're invested in this. You put money into this. Maybe you're on stage. You're invested personally in all of this. And for someone to say that God is not pleased with this, and for someone to say this is not God, this is your God, this is not the God of Israel, will spur anger. Not surprising. And I speak who of someone who does not know. I don't go to this church. But that's what makes it so amazing that this church has the courage to go to the hard word. I can guarantee you that most churches don't. I was in a church a couple of years ago, just visiting, sat on the third row, and a man comes up with a box of donuts. Want a donut? We're, we're trying to encourage people to sit toward the front. See, no one sits up here, right? <laughs> so we give them a donut. Well, there's coffee in the back. And it was all downhill from there. He watched a video clip of a comedy for 10 minutes. Rushed through the Lord's table. But you know what? We were done on time. Because that's the important thing. When we move into the text, he begins to describe the sins of the nations in all of their cruelty. If you go to chapter 1, verse 3, 
for three sins of Damascus, even for four. And maybe this is the culminating sin. This is the sin that pushes God to judgment. She thrust, threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. This could be torture where you put people on the ground and, and run these instruments with iron teeth over their backs and you, and you just rip off their skin. If you go to verse 11 in the same chapter, talking about Edom, because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. Verse 13, because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. This is bloodlust. This is, this is war at its worst. This is war in its true sense. Uncontrolled cruelty. Killing beyond any reason. Ripping open the women. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, even opening the tombs and dragging out the bones and setting the bones on fire. This is at its worst what we experience in the world today. And it's not just the killing. In verse 6 of chapter 1, he talks about the buying and the selling of people. The selling of the war captives. The defeated in the ancient world will become the slaves to the victors. You see this also in chapter 9 selling whole communities into slavery. How do we respond to that? Well, in our world, we just change the channel. After church, we go have lunch in a restaurant, go watch a Bronco game. It's not our world. The question ultimately is, how does God respond? What would God do when he sees it? Well, read the passage. What you read is the wrath of God. They will pay for what they have done. And in the Bible, both old and new, oftentimes the judgment that comes is really just what you have done to others. And so when you go back to that opening oracle in chapter 1, verse 3, after he talks about what they did in war, you move to verse 4, and he says, I will send fire. And he talks about the destruction of their fortresses, the removal of their king, and the taking of their people into exile. See, it's the leaders that make the call whom to attack, where to invade, the location of the targets, and what to do with those who are defeated. That's why they become the targets, the special targets of God's wrath. Because even though the whole nation that is invading is complicit, it is the leaders who are most responsible. And just as they have sold others into slavery, that oracle ends in verse 5 with their suffering the same. Is this your God? A God of wrath 
cares about the slaughter of children and the rape of women? Is this your God who demands judgment on those who burn cities and bomb schools? Is this your God who calls into account of those who behead the innocent? Is this the God that you sing for and about? Is this the one you hear from the pulpit? Because this is the word of God that we never hear. But I can guarantee you, if you were in a little church community in Damascus this morning, this is what you would cry out to God for. You would demand justice. We wonder why in our cities African Americans are so angry after what we've done to them. We imported them for labor. We made them slaves on our farms and our factories. We treated them as worse than animals. If you want to read something, read the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. And he describes not only the life on the plantations, but the religion of the whites on the plantations. And that self-educated slave runaway says, I believe in Jesus, but not the Jesus of the plantations. We don't want to hear this, do we? We went to civil war and we passed the 13th and 14th Amendment. But we still excluded them and we segregated them. It was legal to be racist. Until a brave man, Martin Luther King Jr., stands up in the name of Jesus Christ and he says, this must change. And I have a dream. And in fact, in that very famous speech on the Washington Mall, he quotes from the book of Amos. Let justice roll down, he says. He is quoting the very line that is the title of the series. This is the hard word. God condemns the violence. And these are the nations all around Israel. The nations to the north, Aram, Syria. A nation to uh, the west, the Philistines, the Gaza, uh, Ashdod, and Ashkelon, Ekron, the, the Philistine cities, modern-day Gaza Strip. That's the location. He condemns the Phoenicians, modern-day Lebanon. He condemns Ammon and, and, and Moab, modern-day jo uh, Jordan. He condemns Eden, which is in the south of the land of Israel now, in the Negev. All around them, there's the violence. And they've ex actually experienced it. When he mentions Gilead in the passage, Gilead was part of Israel. They had suffered the violence of the invasions. They had suffered the cruelty of the enemy soldiers. And of course, they would condemn everyone around them. But when you get to the oracle against Israel, Chapter 2, verse 6, he begins it in the very same way as the oracles against the nations. For three sins of Israel, even for four. It's the same. You see, we are no better than they are. 
What do you mean? Well, we're bad, but we're not that bad. Oh, really? We abort over a million a year. Clinical. Legal. It's a right. Saddam Hussein, al-Assad have never killed as many as we have in a year. And you talk about the vulnerable? The fascination in our video games. Spouse abuse and child abuse. You want violence? Semi-automatic weapons in our homes. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And why are we surprised when there are shootings in theaters, in schools, in shopping malls, and in community colleges? Is God turning us over to the very thing we lust after? You want violence? Drink it to its dregs and destroy yourselves in the process. Even as you defend the right to kill the unborn and carry arms, just drink it to the dregs. We are as violent as those around us. We just do it legally. When he turns to Israel, beginning in verse 6, he's talking about the violence done to the poor. They sell the innocent for silver, probably a debt. In the ancient world, if you were in debt and you could not pay, you would become a debt slave and you would work it off. Even for the smallest amount, even for a pair of sandals. Because we're going to follow the law, aren't we? all about legality. Really? Why do rich people always get off? Why do NFL football players commit murder and get suspended for a few games? Why is that? In our jails, we have the largest population in jails in any developed country in the world. Mostly made up of blacks and Hispanics and the poor. Not many rich people in there. They have the lawyers. They have the social clout. They have the media. Uncomfortable, isn't it? They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground. And the, the metaphor is just pushing their faces into the dirt. And they deny justice to the oppressed, even as they enjoy the fruits of the injustice. Father and son use the same girl. Is this incest? Is the father sleeping with his son's wife? Is this a poor girl that had gone into slavery to pay off the debt of her family and, and, the, and the patron of the house now wants to use her for sex. And what's she going to do? There's a debt to be paid. 
and her family needs the money. But oh, they are so religious, they lie down, it says in verse 8, beside every altar and garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fine. You see, they're, they're using the very things they have taken away from those less fortunate and made it as part of their religious celebration. Verses 9 and 10. He says, you know, I, I redeemed you. I brought you out from slavery. I defeated your enemies. But you've become the Egyptians yourself. And now you take advantage of the less fortunate. You ignore the poor. You exploit the vulnerable even as you enjoy the life that it brings. He says in verse 11, I, I raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites. I, I gave you a word, a person who would give you the word. I gave you the Nazarites. I gave you the ones who would be the, the exemplars, uh, the examples of what it means to follow me. But what you read in verse 12 is that they tried to get the Nazarites to drink wine to compromise their commitment. Because Nazarites had vowed not to drink wine. Well, you know, don't be a fanatic. You know, just do a little bit. And the prophets are commanded not to prophesy. See, they will crowd the temples and they will bring their sacrifices. But what they don't want is a hard word. What they don't want is their false world to be exposed for the darkness that it is? What they don't want is to be shamed before God. What they don't want is to repent. And if you think about it, that's part of our problem. In evangelical churches, we have no language for this. So in our churches, there is no lament. Though most of the psalms, if you know the Psalter, are psalms of lament. We just pick the happy parts of the psalms. There is no confession in our services, whether individual or corporate. We don't even have the language for this. We don't even have the theology for this. Because in the suburbs, it's about a God of celebration. And because we don't live the horrors that most humanity lives, God is reduced to our personal existential angsts and salaries. But the God you see rising from the text is the sovereign God who will judge the earth for its sin. In fact, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 2, he moves to the judgment of the people of God. And if you look at that passage, especially beginning in verse 14, it's a judgment of war. They will suffer the same judgment 
is all the nations around them. If we were to go back, don't need to do this, that's all right. Chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, and if you were to count the sins, there are seven. You see, perfect sin. And now in chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, if you were to count the kinds of soldiers, you would see seven. Perfect sin yielding perfect defeat. Because the people of God, above all else, should have known better. And I know I'm moving out of the slide options. But in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it is precisely because they claim to be God's people that they are judged. Did you hear that? It's precisely because we are the people of God that we, above all else, we are beyond excuse. The judgment of God, the New Testament says, begins in the house of God. Because we, above all else, should know better. But we've molded God into a God who never says such things. A God who never makes such demands. A God of such power that we can't even imagine it. And so when it gets to those levels, we opt for our political party. And what I don't hear are words from the Gospels or the prophets. What I hear is the platform of the Republican Party or the Democrats. We have no words in our theology for God at that level. And so we default to the party we vote for. Hard words. Not new words. In John chapter 6, when Jesus has fed the multitudes, he begins to give them a hard word and they begin to leave. And he lets them go. They're concerned about bringing them back. They've made their choice. And it's not for him. And so, he turns to his disciples and says, will you leave me too? And the response is, to whom shall we go? You alone have words of eternal life. See, the whole view of Messiah is changing. It's not just about heaven. It's just not about Jesus kind of putting our lives back together which he can do. In a war zone, the Messiah is one who will bring peace. In a war zone, it is a God who will come through his Messiah and judge the wicked and finally establish justice in the land. And finally, they will have food to eat and farms to live in and land to plow. And to quote the prophet Isaiah in chapter 65, and no longer will we have children born to misfortune. You know, children are being born in Syria this morning. They are doomed from the beginning. There are children 
being born in areas of starvation. They are doomed from the start. That is the Messiah they long for. Not some happy, clappy, inner Jesus who makes me a comfortable middle-class person, who secures me a nice house in the suburbs and a, a nice weekend in the mountains where I can ski. In a new car, because, I mean, you know, it's really important that I have a TV in my car. No, they long for the basics of life. To raise their children in peace and to have food on the table and justice in the courts. That's the bottom line. And that's what Messiah brings. In the Old Testament, the caricature is, this is the God of wrath. You know, we're in the New Testament, that's grace. Well, then you don't know your Bible. Grace permeates the Old Testament. And actually, the book will close with a word of grace. But you will not understand grace until you understand the wrath of God. Not only will you not understand why there is grace, you would understand that it's deaths. You see, Jonah hated the Assyrians, and well, he should have. They had slaughtered people. They had conquered the world. And what Jonah wanted above all else was the fire of God to come upon them and to destroy them, and he tries to run away. And when he preaches to the Ninevites, in contrast to what he says to the sailors. To the sailors he will describe his God, but to the Assyrians not a word. He just says, 40 days and this city will be destroyed. He doesn't even mention the word God. He doesn't want them to repent. He wants the judgment of God against the enemies of his people. But God forgives the cruelest empire in the world and saves its capital city of Nineveh. That is the grace of God. Beyond what we can imagine. And then in the Gospels, Jesus, God in the flesh, will take upon himself the violence of the world. And he will be beaten after a mock trial to the very edge of death stripped and paraded through the cities to carry a cross, even as he bleeds. And it is the Roman soldiers, the occupying army, that will nail him to the cross. And as he looks down from the cross to the Romans who have unjustly killed him, to the Romans who exemplify the armies in the empire that have occupied his homeland, to the leaders who have just pushed the Jews down and humiliated them in every way possible. What he will say as he looks upon them is, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. That is the grace of God beyond anything we can imagine. Because God has taken the violence of the world upon himself. The darkness of our souls the destruction of our world, he embraces.
and the darkness comes and the Messiah on the cross screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the grace of God. We are Christians and we are called to carry a cross. You're not called to good times. You're called, if you read the epistles, we are called to suffer. Romans 8 will tell us, it is in our suffering that we are molded into the image of God. That makes sense. If Jesus suffered, and if we are to be in his image, so will we. And everything works to the good. The good is not everything works out the way we want it to. The good is the image of God. Everything will work out to make us closer to the image of God, which will entail our suffering. The Christian life is not an adventure. It's a pilgrimage to Golgotha. It is to give our life, Jesus says, and as we give our life, we will truly find it. And if you're a mother or a father, you know what I mean because you give your life to your children. And as you give your life to your children, you find out who you really are. It is the same in the Christian life. As we give ourselves to those even who hate us, we will find out who we really are. We, as we carry our cross, will be Christians. And as this country turns against Christians, more and more, this will be our calling to follow the steps of Jesus, whatever it may bring. For the glories that will follow, as Hebrews 12 tells us. In chapter 11 of that very same book, we'll say, you know, we have such a cloud of witnesses around us who have gone before us and now cheer us on to be faithful to the end. This is the God of the Christians. This is the Savior on the cross. This is the church he has brought into existence. I'm glad there's no closing song. What do you sing? What do you say? What do we do? The book will eventually get to something about what we might do in chapter 5. Let yourself be pounded by the Word of God. Let the Word of God soften your soul. So when that Word comes in chapter 5, we might respond as we should. I'm asking the pastor of these Christians to pray for these Christians.